Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Sounds like we could be a couple of weeks away from an HSR shutdown. I'll speak with a Burlington business owner who has family in Gaza. Plus, Pride Tape is back. What will the Bank of Canada do? Love or hate Taylor Swift? And a little vino with your Halloween treats. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The individuals who rely on transit service to get to where they're going to get to work, to get to you know families homes to get to school uh, they'll be impacted um, because their their daily commutes um, as they're used to it uh, will have to necessarily change that is matthew grand city of hamilton spokesperson who joined us on good morning hamilton yesterday talking about an impending strike or a lockout involving hsr workers and hsr workers and the city now as of 12:01 a.m this morning in a legal strike lockout position is the contract talks clearly have not produced a new collective bargaining agreement. So what is the status of talks? Eric Tuck is the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, and joins us on GMH. Eric, thanks for waking up with us this morning. How are you? Oh, it's my pleasure, Rick. Uh, I'm doing fine. Uh, could be doing better if we had uh, good news to report, but unfortunately we don't. Uh, we haven't been able to reach a collective agreement, um, you know, after 26 days of bargaining. The, uh, the employer has decided to give us a final offer, uh, which we are going to be taking back to our members on November the 5th. Okay, so that final offer came when? And at first blush, what does it look like? So th- that offer came about uh, 6.30 last night. And uh, from our standpoint, it's, it's not an acceptable offer. We're going to be recommending that our members turn it down. Uh, and that's a strong recommendation based on the fact that the offer uh, doesn't even keep pace with inflation. Uh, it uh, averages uh, for wage increases, which uh, is the, you know, as as most contracts that get down to the final hours, uh, you get into the wages, and that is the main sticking point uh, at this point. Um, the wage offer that the employer is making right now is about uh, an average of 3.25 per year. Uh, over the four-year contract, and the reality is uh, inflation this year alone is at 4%, uh, and that's not acceptable. We have to keep pace with inflation. Uh, we know that uh, this union or this uh, employer has given, uh, city council voted to give 1,100 bureaucrats, uh, non-unionized bureaucrats earning between 120000 and $160,000 a year. They received a 4% increase plus an additional market adjustment of up to 11%. Uh, so we simply don't see this offer as being fair for our members, and uh, we're going to recommend that they turn it down. When will your members get to vote on this? So we're having meetings on November the 5th uh, all day. We have uh, two or three meetings scheduled and voting will take place all day. Um, So we'll know the results by the end of the 5th. And uh, no vote will be a vote uh, in favor of taking uh, job action or strike. And is that automatic? Are you on strike at that time? Or do you go back to the city and say, hey, listen, our members don't like this deal. We, We need to see something better. So if the vote to, uh, is to reject this offer, that will be a strike mandate. Um, so we can take action after that. We will give 72 hours notice, and uh, it's entirely up to the employer. If they wish to go back to the bargaining table, we're always open to, open to talks. Uh, we hope to get a collective agreement. That's the goal. 
but we need to get one that's fair for our members. Eric Taka is the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, in charge of uh, workers at the HSR who were now in a legal strike position as of 12.01 a.m. this morning. The city also in a legal like lockout position if they choose to go down that route. But the offer on the table now, 3.25% increase per year over four years, as just heard Eric mention. What are you looking for? What are, what are the numbers that would say, okay, this makes sense? So, you know, you got to look at it from our standpoint. Uh, as we said, we talked about the offer being made to non-union staff. So I got co-workers that are non-union working at the HSR uh, who are getting increased this year between eight and $12,000. Uh, my increase uh, based on the 3.25 uh, over the four years would, would work, to work out to less than $2,200 a year. That's not fair. A lot of those uh, non-unionized staff are working hybrid models, working from home. Uh, and the reality is that that's a great benefit for them. Uh, we can't do our work from home. In fact, during the uh, global pandemic, we kept this community going. We showed up to work every day, uh, and we can't work from home. So we don't get those benefits. Um, therefore, we're asking for a raise that's on par with them, that 4%, which keeps pace with inflation. Uh, and then we want a market adjustment. Uh, you know, my members... Uh, both operations and maintenance, skilled trade maintenance staff can go anywhere in a half hour direction uh, and make anywhere from 3 to $5 an hour more. They can go to Brampton, Mississauga and operate uh, a bus there, uh, go transit, and they can make 3 to $5 an hour more. Uh, the reality is we do have transferable skills. They are, do, are in demand and uh, we're entitled to the same market adjustments that they receive uh, to keep pace with inflation. My, my workers are actually getting pushed out of this market. They can't afford to live in Hamilton anymore. As you know, housing prices have gone up, food prices, fuel prices. Um, you know, the working core are getting pushed out of the city. This was a working man's, uh, working person's town. And the reality is now that, uh, you know, the working core are becoming the working poor. and We cannot allow that to continue. So uh, our members are going to take the necessary action to get the raise that they deserve. We have heard that that number is 7% per year. Is that accurate? Uh, when we left the table, the, the last number we tabled was somewhere around 5.5%, uh, between 5 and 55 Is the likelihood that you come a little bit below that number, or, is, or are you standing firm at that 55 So listen, uh, it, it is called negotiations. We're always open to negotiations, but the reality is we have to keep pace with inflation, and we have to recognize the market adjustment uh, that, that keeps us in the market that we built. This city was built by working-class people, and, and we have to be able to afford to live in it. Eric Tuck is the president of Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107. Uh, HSR workers and the city of Hamilton now in a legal strike lockout position as contract talks continue. Uh, describe the mood at the negotiating table. I know you're not going to give away too many details, but is it is it tense? Is it um, like salt or wine and, or uh, wine and vinegar? Like talk about the, the mood at the table. So, so the mood at the table, listen, I recognize the people sitting at the table aren't making the decisions. They're given their orders by city council. This really comes down to city council. They're going to have to make the decision whether they want transit after November the 5th or not. Um, you know, uh, they will get the 72 hours notice, the same as their passengers, and they'll have to make the decision if, if uh, they're going to come back to the table with a, a fair offer. Last one for you. In any negotiation, there's some leverage on either side, and we know that the Grey Cup is being held in Hamilton November 19th, and the HSR expected to play a big role in that celebration. Are you using that event as leverage? 
So uh, I can tell you that we wanted to start bargaining a year ago. Uh, the reality is, uh, because we're on this four-year election cycle, we never get to the table before February or March, uh, and we had a lot of issues on the table this time. So you know, the fact of the matter is, this is when we've we've got to where we the impasse that we're at. Um, timing, uh, yes, it's bad timing for the city. Uh, at the Grey Cup, uh, also, you know, Christmas shopping, uh, a lot of people, we carry a lot of workers up to the Amazon plant. Uh, you know, we're a vital part of the economy in this city. Uh, and we recognize that. Uh, certainly the city should recognize that. We carried this community through the uh, global pandemic. Uh, we got all of those critical workers to where they needed to be. And uh, we need to be recognized for the value that we, we bring to the city. Eric, thanks for the time. Good luck with the uh, ongoing negotiations. Very good. Thanks, Rick. Eric Tuck, President's Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Israel ramping up airstrikes across Gaza, reducing residential buildings to rubble. And Palestinian civilians are paying the price. We've heard that hospitals in Gaza say that they are struggling to treat uh, the mass amount of individuals that are coming for care, wounding, um, wounded individuals. Uh, there's dwindling resources. We've heard about shortages of water and, and food and fuel in Gaza. As relief operations are being pinched in certain points. And, and frankly, thousands of people on both sides, many of them innocent people, children, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, um, are dead. Sadly, that death toll is expected to grow by the day. Faraz Arafat is a Burlington business owner who has family in Gaza and is joining us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML to offer us a little bit of a glimpse of what is happening in that part of the world. Faraz, good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Greg. How are you? I'm okay. How are you doing? I am. I'm okay. I'm actually uh, going through major anxiety. I've been going through major anxiety for the past two weeks since the events in the Middle East happened, and uh, I'm just extremely worried about my family. I uh, have both my parents and my two brothers and family and their families uh, living in Gaza, and. Uh, the last I've seen them was about 20 years ago. Uh, I'm communicating with them via phones. They are, have uh, full brigade in Gaza, so I haven't been able to go and visit them. They haven't been able to leave the country. And yeah, as you know, the situation right now is extremely difficult there. Where exactly in Gaza are they? Because we know that Israel, at least at this onset, is focusing on North Gaza. Uh, are they anywhere close to that? No, they have evacuated from that area. They have evacuated so far three times. They were originally in Khan Yunus, which is uh, a little bit further in the, in the south of Gaza, north of Rafah. But then they moved to Gaza City with my brothers, and then they evacuated to a UN hospital. And uh, the final uh, move was they moved to the south when the uh, notification came that all Palestinians need to move to the uh, south. So they moved to the south and they are staying at uh, my brother's uh, in-laws uh, in the south of Gaza near the uh, border. Uh, the bombing has been going everywhere. I tried to communicate with them as much as I uh, have connections. Uh, they connect with me from time to time every three to four hours and MSs to give me an update when they have access to internet or uh, the cell phone network. 
And uh, right now, uh, all what I get from them is like there's bombing everywhere. The bombing never stops. And I experienced this before when I lived in Gaza about 20 years ago. And I just want to let people know that an F-16 bomb is one of the most horrific things that you can ever imagine. Like when a bomb drops, you lose orientation. You can't feel anything wrong. You can't. You can't, you just are totally disoriented. You don't know what is happening. And it's just the weirdest, the most horrific thing ever. So imagine hundreds of those bombs every day dropping on people. It's so horrific. I don't know how can anything happen. I, I just don't know what to say. I'm so anxious, so scared for my family. I, yeah, I, I can't imagine being in your shoes and, and wondering about your parents and your brothers and how they're doing and where they're going to go and are they going to be evacuated somewhere else. That is just mind-boggling they to think about. Yeah, they don't know. I, when I ask them, what do you think is going to happen? They don't know. They just tell me, we don't know what's going to happen next. They have no idea where they can go. They don't know if there's going to be food next day or not, if there's water. They have no power or electricity or fuel. It's just the worst thing. I never see my family in this situation. They witnessed so many uh, attacks and so many assaults and so many wars, but this is the worst that they ever seen. Are they able to leave? Can they get out somehow? No, nobody can leave. There's absolutely no way for anyone to leave, to leave or enter the strip. I asked them so many times, and it's just they, they can't even move. Not forget about leaving. There's no vehicles. There's no fuel for them to move anywhere. And my parents are old, like they are in their late seventies. At this stage, there's nothing that they want to do. They just want to retire and live peacefully. And it's just really scary to see what they're going through at this stage in their lives. Faraz Arafat is a Burlington business owner who has family in Gaza. His two parents, brothers, have been uh, evacuated uh, a handful of times as bombs continue to fall uh, from Israel into Gaza. What are they saying? What sense do they have in terms of what happens next? They don't really have... They only just... All what they are hoping for is a ceasefire. All what they are really asking for is a ceasefire. They want the bombing to stop. They want to be able to breathe again. They want to be able to sleep again. They haven't slept in days. They just get like breaks from time to time and that's when they take some naps. But they are super exhausted and they don't really know what's going to happen next. I'm sure you have been relaying a lot of information that you are consuming in, in terms of the news here and some of the images that, that you've, uh, you know, seen and heard about. Um, do they have a, a true sense of, you know, what could be next in, in terms of a ground offensive? We've heard that that is going to be coming up next. Well, I, from their perspective, it really doesn't matter. Like, they don't know what's going to happen next. They just want the bombing to stop right now. So... I don't know what their expectations. Uh, I don't know if they're even terrified about the invasion as much as, like, uh, the, the problem is they are in a situation that they have never been in before. And they don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know if an invasion would be, a ground invasion would be a better or a worse situation. Uh, but they don't know what to expect, to be honest. This is like an unprecedented, never happened before. And the fear is, like, unprecedented. I just don't know what to say or what they expect from this. Like, I don't know what is expected from Palestinians or Gazans in general. Like, where do they go? Nobody knows. There's no answers for that. And, and to make matters worse, you know, relief operations across Gaza, you know, there's there's a lack of water, a lack of food, lack of fuel. 
it's it's a very troubling situation. It's it's absolutely miserable. Like for water, like the last I talked to them, they they get salted water, like water that actually I remember that water. They get them from wells, and it's bitter water. It's just not good enough water for humans to to, to drink. But that's the only water that they have, and it's probably laced with sewage. Unfortunately, like there is a huge humanitarian crisis there, and like there is the medical situation. My mom has medical issues that she requires treatments and medical uh, attention and that is not available anymore so i don't know really what is expected i don't know those uh, trucks aid trucks are absolutely uh, not enough like we're talking about and before the conflict started there was about 400 trucks going daily to gaza to support the palestinian civilians there we're talking about 20 now after a major attack, a major assault on Gaza. I don't know how that is going to help anyone. It is wild. Faraz, thank you for sharing your story with us, and I pray that your family stays safe. Thank you, Rick. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Faraz Arafat, a Burlington business owner with family in Gaza with a real-life look at what is happening in that part of the world. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the National Hockey League has reversed course on its decision to ban pride tape. Have you been following the story? Well, if not, the league, the Players Association, and a committee on inclusion agreed to give players the option to represent social causes with stick tape during warm-ups, practices, and games. In a statement on X... The NHL said, quote, after consultation with the NHL Players Association and the NHL Player Inclusion Coalition, players will now have the option to voluntarily represent social causes with their stick tape throughout the season. The pride theme stick tape was included as part of a larger ban on special jerseys to reflect theme nights like pride events, like Hockey Fights Cancer, uh, Military appreciation nights, Appreciation Nights. We won't see any of that this year and perhaps going forward. Stephen Ellis is an associate editor and prospect analyst at Daily Faceoff and joins us on GNH. Stephen, good morning. How are you? I'm great, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. This pride tape ban didn't last very long. Why the quick reversal by the NHL? You know, there was a lot of pushback from the players and, you know, both publicly and privately, a ton of players. I've heard as many as a couple hundred have said that they they were going to defy this at some point, whether it be at the their team's pride event or like we saw Travis Dermott pretty early in the regular season. So it just looks bad for the league to have made the ruling and then immediately have so much pushback that they're already changing that rule. It doesn't look good for a league that just caused their own PR headache for no reason. You mentioned Travis Dermott, former Maple Leafs defenseman now with Arizona. He defied the ban on Saturday by having pride tape on his stick during a game. And I heard there were some teams that would see all their players play with pride tape in defiance of the league. So it was it sounds like the league was trying to get ahead of what could have been a PR nightmare. Yeah, like the like the Coyotes in particular have their Pride Night coming up in a few days and they were gonna uh they, they were gonna likely have everybody participate in that case. So it just again just uh, why they made the rule in the first place, I still don't understand. Does this do you think open the door potentially to the Pride jerseys returning for warm ups? 
I, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I know that we've already seen some teams that have said they're going to be using uh, pride jerseys kind of it, not for a warm up for, for when the players arrive or maybe even do something like a red carpet type thing before a game and still auction off the jerseys. So will they use that on, on the ice? I'm still not sure. Um, but I think the one thing is the teams still want to make these jerseys. They still want to auction these off and still get, raise the money for local groups. So it looks like there might still be the positive impact, but I guess we'll have to see what the team teams end up doing on the ice. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Stephen Ellis, Associate Editor and Prospect Analyst with Daily Faceoff. And we're talking about the ban on pride tape now being lifted by the National Hockey League, which I think is good news from an inclusion standpoint. And on that front, you know, the NHL has tried its darndest to be, as it says, as inclusive as possible. This reversal of the ban certainly, you know, going in the right direction. Does the league still have an issue with a, a lack of inclusion? I, I think the fact that this was even something they decided to do is not a good sign. So uh, I'd say definitely for sure. You know, I will say that hockey as a whole globally has been working harder to try and make it a more inclusive sport. Obviously, you know, we know it's more of a white dominated sport, but then you look at the fact that, you know, it's so expensive. It's in one of the most expensive sports you could possibly play. So that part still needs to change. But I guess the one thing I can say is that hockey from a global standpoint, is probably as big as it's ever been. It still just needs to grow kind of for the mass audience, but it's being played in more countries than ever before, which is really good. So, uh, But that's just kind of one way they start. On the ice, I have to ask you, is there a big surprise, either positive or negative, that comes to mind in this early start to the season? This might sound kind of crazy, but, you know, the Boston Bruins being undefeated at this point, even after last year, I think is really surprising. It's a team that nobody really saw repeating the what they did last year, and they're actually not even one of the higher scoring teams. They're just they've only allowed seven goals this year and they've won six games in a row. So they're surprising. Detroit being as good as they are is definitely surprising. And to stay in the Atlantic, Buffalo not really being a huge threat right now, I think is a lot of catching a lot of teams off guard. And what's going on with Edmonton? I mean, they have the best player in the world. They've won one of their first six games. Yeah, you know, you know, obviously losing McDavid doesn't help, but McDavid was there for the first five games, and it didn't seem to really matter. It's just, you know, goaltending's not looking good at all. Uh, they're not scoring like they should. It's just, you know, they've got the team to make it happen. It's just not clicking. I wonder if we do see a coaching change soon. Ooh, already? It wouldn't surprise me at this point. Wow. Uh, quick thoughts on the Maple Leaf start to the season. Uh, you know, a bit bit up and down, but I think that, you know, the way Joseph Wool's playing right now, that's got to get exciting. You know, he's the guy I thought was going to maybe be the starting goalie by the end of the year, and, and I can see it now. Absolutely. It looked fantastic last night in a 4-1 win for the Maple Leafs in Washington. Stephen, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Stephen Ellis, Associate Editor and Prospect Analyst with Daily Faceoff. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, Canadians are going to hear the latest interest rate decision from the Bank of Canada later on this morning. A lot of forecasters expecting a weakening economy and, and slowing inflation is going to prompt the central bank to say, you know what, let's just press pause on where we are, which is 5%. Meantime, and this is very interesting, we'll talk about this with our next guest, the head of the central bank, Tiff Macklem, the governor of Bank of Canada, says premiers, including Ontario's Doug Ford, who have asked for no more interest rate increases could hurt the institution's independence. Let's chew on that with Jean-Paul Lamb, associate professor of economics at the University of Waterloo. And Jean-Paul is also a former assistant chief economist at the Bank of Canada. JP, good morning. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not too bad. This commentary about the the bank of canada 
and whether or not they should be rising or, or, or tumbling the, the key lending rate, is it, is it damaging at all? It is, uh, because central bank independence is considered one of the cornerstone of uh, effective central banking. And when a central bank is independent, it can pursue policies that are geared to low and stable inflation, as the Bank of Canada does, which is essential for fostering economic growth, uh, macroeconomic stability, and it is important for the overall economic well-being of Canadians. And they can do this without falling to political pressures that may prioritize short-term electoral gains over the long-term uh, policy goals of the Bank of Canada, which you know is inflation targeting. We've also heard from Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev over the last number of weeks and months saying if he was elected prime minister, he would fire the governor of the Bank of Canada. A, can he do that? And B, what impact would that have? Well, the governor of the Bank of Canada is appointed by the government, essentially by the Minister of Finance, on, on advice of the cabinet. So he uh, absolutely has the power to do that. Would it be wise? And on what basis? Uh, wise, probably not. And I don't see any basis for firing uh, Tiff McClam other than maybe uh, the record of the Bank of Canada on inflation in the last uh, two years. But that... We know inflation has been uh, a problem for every country in the world, and it's not specific to Canada. I think uh, having talks like that and uh, making threats like that just damages the credibility of institution. Many uh, forecasters are predicting that the key lending rate will stay at 5% today. Is that the expectation that you see, and what's the impact on the economy? That's the consensus, and I think I agree with the consensus uh, this time. The as you as you said in the introduction, the economy is weakening, inflation is falling, albeit slowly, but still falling towards the target. So right now, I think the Bank of Canada's decision is very data dependent, and it seems that there is no reason for the Bank of Canada to hike rates. Uh, I think I've said that many many times. Even if the, if the rate doesn't change until the end of the year, it's going to stay high for a long period of time, even if inflation reaches 2% by the middle or the end of next year, expect rates to continue to stay high uh, around that level. What is the forecast for inflation? If if this key lending rate stays at 5% or if it rises a little or, or tumbles a little, where is inflation going in the next uh, 12 to 24 months? So as we know, it takes a lot of time for increases in interest rates to work where their way through the economy. Typically, models, economic models tells us that it takes anywhere between 16 to 24 months to for inflation to fall after increases in interest rate. So inflation is the good news is inflation is going back to 2%. The bad news is it's still high and it's taking a lot of time. So I think the forecast of the Bank of Canada, although they've been very wrong in the last couple of years, um, suggests that inflation is going to go back to its target of 2% by the end of 2024. And I think most economists agree with that forecast. So we see inflation going back to uh, its target of 2% by the end of 2024. So there is still a long way to go.
But that is a, a good news nugget. That is for sure. We'll just have to wait for it. John Paul, always appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, your time and uh, your insight this morning. Thank you for having me again, Greg. John Paul Lamb is an associate professor of economics at the University of Waterloo and a former assistant chief economist at the Bank of Canada. He's got some good nuggets of info in there for you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Be honest with me. You are sick and you are tired of hearing about Taylor Swift. It's okay. You're not alone. But there is a massive amount of people, Swifties especially, who just can't get enough. Her exposure has ramped up during her era's tour and and the associated movie. Uh, Swift is getting a ton of cross promotion in the biggest league in North America, that being the National Football League, thanks to her relationship with Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. Uh, The question is, how long will Taylor Swift mania last and have we seen its zenith yet? Uh, There's a great article online at 900chml.com and globalnews.ca titled, I thought we'd reach peak Taylor Swift. I was wrong. The person who wrote that is our next guest here on GMH. Alan Cross, the host of the Ongoing History of New Music, joins us here on 900 CHML. Alan, good morning. How are you? I'm uh, I'm fine, but I'm <laughs> exhausted by the Taylor Swift coverage. Yeah, I think we were all wrong. Uh, yeah. Now, the question was, after she sold out 52 stadium shows last year when the Eras Tour was first announced, and then all the albums that she had in the top 10, and then all these albums that she was re-recording so she could reclaim ownership of the masters, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's like, okay, how much bigger can this woman get? Uh, Two things. First of all, there's the idea of overexposure. Uh, And secondly, the amount of energy that it must cost her to continue to crank out stuff like this on such a consistent basis, I mean that's that's pretty much supernatural what she's doing, and should be given she should be given all the credit in the world for that. I don't know how this woman is is able to maintain the pace that she's maintaining, and it's not just writing music and performing shows; it's having to deal with the with with, with her public image and her her place in in public. I mean, this is a woman who leaves her New York apartment in a road case and is shut, shuffled into a van so she can avoid her fans. Um, I've also heard stories that she uh, appears on stage only after she's been transported from the dressing room in a road case, you know? So, and then the paparazzi are everywhere, and the cameras, the TV cameras are everywhere. I, 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 honest to God, I have I have no idea how she does it. Um, but it's been worth it, I guess, because she just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, defying a lot of expectation. Is Beatlemania the closest thing? I think so. Uh, I think so. If you talk to Billy Joel, he will tell you that he had never seen anything like this since the era of, of Beatlemania, which, you know, was a pretty intense thing, but the time and circumstances were substantially different because rock and roll was so new and they were so different and they were from the UK and they were, um, you know, exotic with their haircuts and beetle jackets and beetle boots and and haircuts and all the rest of it. Uh, This is something um, more in line with what we saw with, you know, the Rolling Stones in the 1970s, uh, what we saw with U2 in the eighties and early nineties. It's what we saw with the, uh, the boy bands in the early 19 or the late 1990s and early two thousands. But uh, this has eclipsed a lot of those, 
in, in a bunch of different ways, simply because we're living in the era of social media and her face, her name is, is absolutely everywhere. I mean, you talked about the NFL, there's now a Taylor cam, you know, <laughs> if she's in, if she's in one of the VIP boxes, there's somebody in the broadcast booth whose job it is to train a camera on her and catch her reactions whenever anything happens. Uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's really something. So my question has been, or is now, how, A, much bigger can she get? And B, when will overexposure, uh, settle in? Mm -hmm. No one, there, you know, we've, we've said this in the past, but no one has ever been immune to the fickleness of the public and, People will get tired of you after a while. Just ask the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Britney Spears. Yeah. yeah, Taylor Mania has an expiry date. We just don't know when that's going to be because, you know, you look at her fan base, you know, the 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 prime age is what, 10 to 15 years of age? Yeah. So what's happening is she she has this hardcore, you know, tween and early teen fan base, but it extends beyond that. Uh, the people beyond that age will, you know, probably continue to stick with her. But, you know, pop music for all of us is training music with training wheels. It's something that we get into easy because it's uh, early because it's easily digestible. It's a good, got a good beat and you can dance to it. Mm -hmm. uh, there are all these people who will age. And we've seen this generation after generation after generation. They will age into uh, a period of time when they want or they believe they want music that is more serious, more substantial, more cool than what they're listening to as as a, a tween or early teen. So, you know, Taylor's fan base is going to age. Will they age along with her? I don't know. It can be done. I mean, we can look at the Beatles. Um, people aged along with the Beatles. People aged along with you, too. Uh, the people aged along with the Rolling Stones. So she could become one of these iconic evergreen unicorn artists. Or everybody could just say, that's enough. I'm tired of hearing your songs about your ex-boyfriends. I'm tired of seeing you on my NFL broadcast. I'm, I'm tired of reading about you in the gossip columns all the time. Uh, and, and we just need a break, you know, and, and, you know, maybe we'll never ever get back together. I don't know. Um, sounds like a song. <laughs> uh, you know what? Yeah, probably. It's it's um, it's an interesting social, demographic, economic, and artistic phenomenon that uh, I think we'll be looking back on years from now and and studying, trying to figure out exactly why things happen. You know, one of the things about music today is that it really doesn't have a center. Uh, with streaming, everybody gets to listen to whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they happen to be, and whatever device they happen to have. Uh, so we, we don't have the, the same kind of consensus that we used to in the pre-internet age about, you know, the, here's a limited number of, of artists and we choose a, a small subset of that limited number to be stars. We say that we like them. Um, Taylor Swift comes along and she creates her own gravity well and becomes her own center and sucks everything into it. So again, how long before this star implodes and turns into a black hole? 
Wow, there's a lot of analogies there for yeah, you. Yeah, that's that's getting deep. That's getting deep there. Uh, listen, we'll leave it at there. It's a fantastic conversation. It's an awesome article. You can check it out online, 900chml.com, globalnews.ca, and you can listen to the ongoing history of new music Sundays at 8 p.m. on CHML's brother station, Why One Wait, with the host, Alan Cross. Alan, appreciate the time. You're welcome. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You might just want to treat yourself this Halloween, and not necessarily just with Halloween treats. How about a little little vino with that Halloween chocolate bar? Can you pair Halloween candy with wine? Well, apparently so. And here to talk about it is Natalie McLean, wine writer and author, who joins us on GMH. Natalie, good morning. How are you? Hey, Rick, I'm great. How are you? And, you know, Rick, why should all the kids have all the fun on Halloween? Yeah, that's absolutely right. The adults have to have fun as well. When did this become a thing or or has it always been a thing? (laughs) Oh, it's always been a thing in our household (laughs) from from the time the kids were small and I was stealing their treats after they went to bed. But anyway, no, I think you could always pair wine with, um, well, whether it's Halloween treats or desserts of any kind, as long as you keep the wine sweeter than the dessert, you know, it's no different from whether it's chocolate mousse or a little chocolate bar. You want to look for flavor matches between the wine and the food, whether it's, you know, toffee or lemon. And the idea really is to have fun and experiment. So a lot of it is uh, trial and error. Exactly. And and all of that trial and error research is is delicious. <laughs> yeah, I would I would assume so. Which wines are, are, are is there a particular set of wines that pair nicely with let's just go with the chocolate bar whether it's a Snickers or a Mars or whatever the case is. Sure. So keeping in mind that guideline that the wine should be sweeter than the treat otherwise the wine will taste bitter by comparison. We're going to look for Um, wines with either some natural residual sugar or perhaps a fortified wine. So if it's a dark chocolate, uh, so it's not on the extreme sweet end of chocolate, you could go with something like an Italian Amarone. Um, You know, it's high in alcohol, 14%, so that helps melt the chocolate in your mouth, matches the weight and flavor of of the chocolate. Um, But if you've got something that's even less sweet than that, maybe say... Uh, a Tootsie Roll. We're getting very technical here. My mm-hmm. apologies. Um, then you can go with something that perhaps is even on the drier end of the spectrum with wine, um, like a California Cabernet, uh, like a Tribute from Benzinger or a Washington State Merlot. There's a new one out called Velvet Devil, which is really seasonal, uh, seasonal label. Natalie McLean is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Natalie is a wine writer and author. You can check out her website, nataliemcclain.com. Are there certain treats that just, no matter what, will not go with wine? I'm thinking, and maybe I'm off here, like black licorice. Does that go with wine? Wow, that's a toughie. Um, (laughs) But speaking from my years of experience, (laughs) there's a wine for that too. So um, the dark flavors, what what we've got there is like star anise or, you know, the dark licorice flavors. You really want a dark, uh, brooding, sweet wine. So I would go with a vintage port. So these are fortified wines after they've, um, you know, fortified or fermented like natural wines. More sugar is added so that they ferment to a higher level of alcohol, like about 20%, and a higher level of sugar. And so they have a lot of fleshy, dark, ripe fruit. And think about whatever flavors might be in the wine, would you mix that into a dessert? Like if you had a a dessert that had anise, like would you mix in some dark plums with it? 
Yes, you would. Mm -hmm. So why not put a vintage port with your your dark licorice, especially if you've just won the lottery? Well, absolutely. I'm thinking even, uh, you know, like Starburst or maybe a Lifesavers to kind of, you know, add that sweetness to what the wine brings to the table. Yeah. Uh, So, again, we have to be very specific and and technical here, Rick. So if you're talking lemon flavor Starburst, Mm -hmm. then I recommend something like a sparkling wine with some lemon lime zest. Like there's excellent, oh, fabulous sparkling wines in the Niagara region. I'm thinking specifically of Westcott Vineyards or Marianus and Estate Winery. Of course, then, if you're thinking more of the cherry starburst, we're going in another direction entirely, uh, maybe even a Pinot Noir. So, uh, again, we have to be very scientific about this. Should we consider the textural components of, say, a chocolate bar that might have some, you know, extra nuts with it? Does does that even matter? It does. The the nuts are, not only do they t- change the texture, but they're what we call a bridging ingredient. So they make the chocolate test taste a little less sweet. Um, so they allow a wider range of wines. You don't have to just stay down at the sweet end of the spectrum. So you can broaden that out to more of your, you know, your full-bodied reds with some some natural residual sugar. Got a couple more minutes with Natalie McLean, wine writer and author. NatalieMcLean.com is the website as we talk about pairing Halloween candy with uh, wine. Uh, what are the hottest wine flavors on the market right now? What are people gravitating to? Well, orange wines remain trendy, and I, I guess that is a great seasonal wine at this time of the year as we get closer to Halloween. Um, I love Southbrook, uh, Vidal, skin-fermented orange wine. No oranges were harmed or involved in the making of orange wine, by the way. It's just, it's like you set out to make a white wine, but you leave the grapes on their skins longer than you would for a white. Because with most whites, you want kind of a clear color. But with orange, you're going to get that tint just a little bit from the grape skins. And so it ends up tasting like a very full-bodied white. Um, and it has these wonderful aromas like of tea and and other odd things, which would be perfect if we rope this back into our subject with chips and pretzels or mm. even Doritos, those uh, snacks that are salty and bready, but not sweet. So you need a wine that's crisp and refreshing, but doesn't have to be sweet itself. I kind of blacked out after you said chips, pretzels, and Doritos, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I get what you're throwing down. Natalie, I appreciate your time this morning, and thanks for wetting our palate. Cheers. Have a great uh, Halloween. YouTube. Natalie McLean, wine writer and author. NatalieMcLean.com is the website. There's also a national online tasting party, November the 9th. You can Google that and celebrate the season in style. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.